Hey there, welcome to Dead Dangers Ball. Uh, this is the first episode of 2018. Uh, it was actually recorded a few weeks ago. Uh, oh, there goes Fawn's running around again. Uh, on my birthday here, uh, actually in December, um, at the Street Virus offices. Um, and we had a party there that was sponsored by Shinola, um, Shinola Detroit. Um, and, uh, Basically, uh, the idea was to um, uh, basically highlight their their audio uh, section or their audio products. Um, they have a turntable, the Runwell turntable. They have headphones they make. Um, if you go to shinolaaudio.com, uh, you can check out the turntable on there. And also, uh, if you look at the uh, on YouTube, Runwell turntable by Shinola um, shows you how it was made. Um, they put a lot of uh, time and thought into the uh, design of the turntable and it's made uh, here in the U.S. in Detroit. So we figured we'd uh, do a little bit of a Detroit-themed party and podcast uh, to celebrate that. So I was lucky enough to uh, track down Pat Thomas, um, who is an author uh, and a sort of yeah, music historian, archivist, uh, what have you. Um, but uh he has a he has a couple chapters in a book called Heaven Was Detroit that I uh, highly recommend, and uh, I had him come down and talk on the talk on the show uh, about that. And um, you'll hear some stuff at the end. That there's music at the end that's actually part of a uh, a label called Black Forum that was a subsidiary of Motown. So we have music at the end of the podcast this time, and then I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll list the name of those songs and also. Uh, tell you what they are at the end of the show so if you can make it to the end and listen uh, there's some really cool really weird stuff out there that uh, I don't think a lot of people have heard uh, so check that out so just again uh, we want to say thanks uh, to Shinola for sponsoring this episode of Jetbangers Ball uh, and since we are you know about music uh, first and foremost uh, it's a perfect uh, sort of tie-in to have them on board and check out their turntables um, check out their headphones uh, and check out their uh, Made in Detroit audio products. Uh, without further ado, let's talk to Pat Thomas. It's okay with their sound, but... That volume's perfect, I think, for them. It's, it's fine, yeah. but I can hear your shoes and all that stuff clomping around. When, usually when we do the Bitcoin podcast... Uh, the dog is barking in the background. Yeah, well, it gives so, it a little more authentic, yeah, we, authenticity. I have, or I, have to, I have to run and get the dog away from the mailman whenever the... Somebody on the, uh, on the jet was like, is that the dog we're always hearing on the podcast? <laughs> oh, yeah, he's, he's famous from his, his podcasting. Um, dog casting. No? Um, you can if you want. Yeah. I mean, I'm recording right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, come back in. That sounds good. You usually come in for these things. We used to do them at this building. Oh, okay. Here. Yeah. And uh, um, they had like a little room. Yeah. They had like a little desk with microphones built in and everything. It was super cool. Yeah. Um, but whoever was paying, I think it was some sort of uh, weed company, <laughs> was paying for it. Right. And then, and then uh, you know, they bailed. Yeah. Whenever. Sure. <laughs> I don't know what happened, you know. Yeah. The, the guy had to leave the country. Sure. Quickly, mm-hmm. you know, one of those situations. Mm-hmm. So, I have so many sponsors today too. We have this. Uh, Ash- I saw that Ash- this place Ash- is sponsor Diamond. heavy. Interscope room. Yeah. Shinola headphones. Yeah, pizzas. Mm-hmm. John and Vinny's. Cool. I have a special Detroit 
style pizza today. Oh, nice. Which is sort of like a Chicago deep dish, I guess, but oh, okay. even even deeper. Even deeper. Even thicker. Even thicker. Um, so, yeah, fuck it. I mean, Jess is going to come in here, and so, you know. Sure. Um, but what I wanted to um, kind of start off with, Pat, is that, uh, you know, I was reading up about you a little bit, but you grew up here in L.A. Uh, no, not actually. No, not actually. <laughs> I grew up around Rochester and Buffalo, New York. Oh, really? And I've been in California since 87. I did 25 years in uh, San Francisco. Where were you born? Uh, around Binghamton, New York. Oh, okay. So okay. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a New York State okay. uh, state of mind. So I was wrong. I, 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 thought, I, saw, okay. I thought I saw that or That's whatever. That's all right. Uh, so yeah, I've only been in LA for about five years. And uh, you know, I recently worked on this uh, book about Detroit. I, I did a book about the Black Panther Party and related music. I just did a book about Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman, and the Yippies. Yeah. So, um, you know, I kind of blend pop culture, counterculture, politics, and music. Sure. From like about 68 to 72. Well, we're going to get to all that. I just sure. wanted to know about you a little bit okay, personally. Yeah. because okay. So you grew, up, you grew up in Rochester, New York then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and so, and, and so what, what drew you to music, I guess, originally? Because I, I was a little confused. I thought you were out here. But you said you moved out to San Francisco in like 87? Yeah, I was like 22 at that time. Or right. Something. What drew me to music was we lived seven miles from town. And, you know, it pre-internet days. Pre- well, this is pre-pre-internet pre, days. Pre-pre-pre. I'm pre-internet days. Yeah, You're, right. Yeah. I'm pre-pre. Yeah. And so, like, seven miles might have been, could have been 700 miles. Right. Right. And my parents worked a lot. And so... On a Saturday afternoon, we only had three TV stations, no cable. Sure. And so listening to records was the only thing to do. Were you listening to, to their records, your parents' records? Well, I had a brother who was 10 years old. Okay, that's so, always, yeah. So I cut my teeth with The Who, Who's Next, right. Rod Stewart, Every Picture Tells a Story, A Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull. Um, oh, yeah. You know, a little bit of you know that stuff, classic rock. And, and when I was listening to those albums, they were... Just a few years old, you know. They, right. They were kind of new records, right. you know. And, uh, you know, then as time went on, you know, got into Zeppelin and the Stones. and But, yeah, on a Saturday afternoon in the mid-'70s, music was just about, you know, it. You know? Was, was your brother, like, was he, like, sort of considered a, a, a bad influence? Or was he a rebel? And is that where he was getting those records from? Or He was a little bit of a bad influence. I mean, my brother, you know, my brother was, was a... In high school, was kind of a classic hippie. It was like 68, right. 69. He was definitely smoking weed and uh, chasing hippie chicks. And, of course, I was like eight. And, man, I, he was like my god, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, we had a poster of Easy Rider, you know, Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda. Totally. And so somebody said to me once that when you're in a family like that, you're as old as your oldest sibling. Right. And so when people meet me, they think that I might even be 10 years older than I am. Luckily, not because of how I look, right? but because I know all this stuff. You know, I kind of lived it sort of vicariously through him. Yeah, that's the that's the kind of the cliche of like, if you don't have an older brother, maybe you have like an older neighbor down the road or exactly. whatever. Because I had a guy, I, I grew up in outside of Portland, Oregon, and I grew up in this trailer park, and I had this guy that mm. I kind of conned my parents into making him my babysitter sure but he was just the mullet headed rocker dude that lived in the trailer park and you know he was playing me like uh like the this is more like 80s so it's a little bit more it was like the first Def Leppard album sure you know on through the night like the right the, like kind of the the mm-hmm. new wave of British heavy metal stuff 
he was he was a little bit deeper than what was like on the radio at the right. time. Right. So that was know? for for that was cutting edge for what that was for sure. Because the, the, yeah. the girls and stuff in our in our neighborhood were listening to like Bon Jovi and stuff. Right. And I was like, okay, well that, that's that's fine. But then he would be like, oh, have you heard like Saxon or something like that's mm-hmm. a little bit gnarly or a little you know? more cutting edge. Yeah, definitely. That's <clears throat> yeah. Cool. So you so you that, so you have that experience where you, you know if you have one of those guys, you know, it's, yeah. It, the other it, thing, it opens so much up. You the know? other thing that I had at my disposal, my dad taught college and they used to have a lot of parties uh you know my, my dad wasn't exactly a hipster but somebody was friends with the students and so i'd be like 12 years old and it would be me my dad and then like you know 30 guys in their <laughs> 20s and they would be like i would be almost interviewing them because a lot of these guys are going to woodstock or right. they'd and so i would get all these stories and again pre-internet you couldn't right. google this crap you had to get it from the horse's mouth, and I would, I would, you know, see some bearded guy, and I'd be like, "Hey, man, can we talk about uh, the Stones?" <laughs> oh yeah, man, Song sixty nine, Madison Square Garden, man. Oh god, damn, it was that great. guy's waiting for someone to ask him if he can talk about the Stones. Yeah, and so, I, and so, I got sort of a, a an education in rock and roll from f- freaks. Yeah, you know, direct, directly from the freaks. Yeah, I mean, and and if you get it that early on, I mean, I had the same thing. My mom was a was a teacher at like an alternative high school. Okay. Like a, you know, where, where the kids that couldn't go to regular school ended up at. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And they had a, I've told this story before, but they've had, they had a, they had a vote. Um, again, this is the late eighties. They had to, they allowed the kids to vote for the name of the school. Oh, wow. And the, and they changed the name of the school to Pantera high school. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> because of the band. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I love the business. You know, I, I recently graduated. I went back to school late in life. I originally gradu- recently graduated from Evergreen. Oh, yeah. So I, so I know the Pacific Northwest uh, better than, you know, most people in L.A. do. I, I did three years in uh, Seattle, Olympia, Portland. See, I, I, I went from Portland to Seattle. And mm-hmm. when I lived in Seattle, uh uh, the the Olympic uh, what was the what's the theater in Olympia called the the uh, the big one um, I think it's called like the Olympia yeah the something. Olympic theater or the I think Olympic theater I yeah. think that's and then they have back the backstage where they had a lot of like rock shows and sure when we were under when we were under twenty one that was a really big like all ages place to go and they had yeah. the Yo Yo Go Go festival there and like all uh, did you get into the K record scene uh, oh, I love K records uh, beat happening and Calvin Johnson and that gang that came a little bit later oh okay Th- that wasn't well, I mean, later. I mean, three years later from when I was nineteen or whatever. But okay, sure. For me, like that stuff at first was not punk rock enough and not right. Heavy it was a, enough. Li- a little twee, maybe. It's too twee. I didn't understand beat happening. Like what the f- like? Yeah, what the f- what the hell is that? Yeah, what is this? Uh, <laughs> yeah, my right. my friend Quitty worked at K Records though. Sure. Um, and then and then a couple bands like Carp and some of these bands, these heavy bands, put out stuff right. on K Records. Sure. And but for me, I just. I didn't understand how you could be in a heavy band and be on K Records because it was the beat happening guy, and I I couldn't put those yeah. things together. Now it all makes sense, you know. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I remember also. I heard. Uh, I think beat happening, beat happening toured with. I want to say like Fugazi at some Probably, point. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, did you know, actually. Yeah, there's a huge Olympia DC. There, there is because uh, it's kind of a. I wouldn't call it political. It's more social political. Sure. You know, obviously, Riot Girl. Well, it is political. You know, Riot Girl and and just sort of anti corporate rock. And so, yeah, there is this kismet. Between they share a definite DIY mentality, totally, yeah. and and then and a total um, yeah. sort of uh, yeah. all ages thing. You know, totally. the, the guys that I, the guys that I first lived in a house with in Seattle uh-huh. 
were in a band called Behead the Prophet, No Lord Shall Live. Uh-huh. They were all uh, uh, from Olympia. Yeah. They had all gone to Evergreen or, you know, lived, out, yeah. lived near Evergreen. <laughs> right. <laughs> and their band was like, they yeah. only played all ages shows. Of course. They, they would not any- play a bar. You know, yeah, no, there is there is a political thing there because the, people get rooted in that, right? And they probably wouldn't do an over eighteen show if you gave them five grand. Well, and it's funny because <laughs> like later on in life, you know, one one of the, they were in another band, some of these guys, and and they got a different band got asked to tour with Motorhead, uh-huh. and they this, half the band said no, the other band half said yes, and they caused this big di- division. You of know, course, because like yeah. they were like, I thought we only played all ages shows, and the other guys like, it's fucking Motorhead, dude. Like, what the fuck? You yeah, know? exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. So what what made you go to Evergreen? That's so interesting to me. Well, you know, I was I was working uh, on my book about the Black Panthers, right. And I had started working for Lightning Attic, which is based in Seattle, or was. Was, yeah. Well, both. I, both. I LA. had signed a book deal with Fanagraphics, which right. is a Seattle publisher. And so... I worked at Sub Pop for many years. So oh, okay. So you know the scene. All these people, you, you know. know. The scene. So a friend of mine... I know uh, all the mailroom people at both companies. Right. And so a friend <laughs> of mine said, uh, dude, you know, if you're going to go back to school, you know, there's this, this college, Evergreen. And I had thought Evergreen was a private school because yeah. I knew it was a little different. And they're like, no, no, dude, it's a state school. It'll be cheap. And, right. And so I went there and got a degree in American studies, and I was able to turn my Black Power book into a degree, you know, basically, right. you know, because yeah. they, they sort of... Well, tri- I remember they had uh, Mumia Abul-Jamal as the uh, speaker at Oh, graduate. people freaked out, man. <laughs> they freaked out. That, that's the yeah. that's evergreen, though. That's evergreen. Know? But basically, they run their BA program sort of like a master's, right. where you can do special projects for your BA. So it was, it was the perfect school for me, you know. So we'll get... So going back to Rochester, though. Sure. You're listening to The Who. You're hanging out with your dads and his uh, sort of like uh, the guys that used to beat people up at all. Altamont, basically, <laughs> those guys, the Hell's Angels guys. <laughs> Not quite, but that's funny. That's very funny, dude. It's kind of, kind of, and that they were they were telling you about the music, and so, so in high school you were thinking like, were you ever thinking at that point like this is this is something I want to pursue as a career, or were you just? Well, I have this epiphany. It's it's 1976, and I'm about 12. And I see on ABC TV, keep in mind, you know, there's no MTV yet. There's no cable. There's nothing. There's nothing. And I see this Friday night special called Wings Over America, which is the Paul McCartney tour. You know, and of course, you know, being a big Beatles fan. And I remember thinking, that's what I want to do, right? And I was already playing drums a little bit. And so I started a garage band and we played tons of Leonard Skinner. Yeah. What was the name of the band? It was called Side Street, okay. and then later it was called Who's Next. Oh, I love... Oh, Who's Next? It was, it was not a Who cover band, but It was not a Who cover We didn't oh play any God. Who. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We didn't play any Who. And I... I like Side Street, though. That's a yeah, cool... Side Street, right. It reminds me of that Paul Kossoff record, Backstreet Crawler. Well, you know what? We did a lot of Kossoff. I bet you did. We did. That we was the Kossoff time to do some Kossoff. And, and Free. We played a lot of Free. Fuck yeah. Well, he's from Free. There you go. Right, right. Yeah. So... I got into the music business because I thought, well, that'll be a way to become uh, whatever band I happen to be in, right? Right. So here it is, you know, decades later, very few people know that I'm a drummer, but everybody looks at me as, you know, a music biz guy. So basically the biz became 
a, a means to an end that I wasn't quite planning on. Right. You know, I think that's kind of what happened to me too. Yeah. It kind of happens to most. Yeah. Us, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I mean, I would have, I would have settled to just be, you know, signed to SST in the '80s and you know sold ten thousand albums. That would have sure. been nice. Yeah. Instead, I was in a band that probably sold twenty five hundred albums. Yeah. You know, sera, sera, but okay. Yeah. And were you guys? You guys were touring around New York and stuff. Or yeah, what? we had a band called Absolute Gray, and we had a female singer. We were kind of like REM with a chick singer. Uh huh. And uh, you know, we played CBGBs. Uh-huh. We opened for the Dream Syndicate, who were playing down the street here right. in a bit. We played with bands like the Rain Parade, the right. Three O'clock. We hung out a little bit with REM. You know, back when REM was like an indie rock band. So it was that Paisley Underground sort of thing, totally, to, for lack of a better term. Right. And in fact, one of my jobs these days is I, I I put together reissues for most of the Paisley Underground bands. I've worked with the Bangles, Dream Syndicate, Rain Parade. Right. I'm working on a Paisley Underground box set right now. Right. So. And and Dream Syndicate actually is playing down the street tonight, and that and that's how you met them was that what year was it that you met them i met them in 80 around 84 maybe yeah. and we just you know I, I went from i went from fanboy to their archive list over maybe a five-year period right and so now whenever there's a dream syndicate reissue they're like okay pat you know what are the bonus tracks you're writing the liner notes right some photos you know i'm kind of their go-to guy and know? i was going to ask you this later but uh and so is Kendra Smith playing with them again? Or well, this what, is a very special night if anyone is a Dream City event. Kendra Smith is the original bass player, and she's been kind of a, a hermit, for lack of a better word. Right. She has not been seen in public since 1997. She hasn't released any of her own music since 1994, and she's going to do two songs tonight okay. at the El Rey. Yeah, I have a friend who's going specific and told me that specifically, and I wanted to yeah. get it from the horse's mouth here, though. I I loved that uh, Opal record. Right. Unfortunately, David Roback, who was the other half of Opal, uh, they used to... Uh, let me... I'll just keep this a second. They used to be a couple, you know, they split up years ago, and I think to... In my opinion, to punish Kendra's legacy, he's never allowed the Opal stuff to get reissued. Oh, it's not been reissued. It's not. Believe me, he's been offered crazy amounts yeah. of money to do a CD and vinyl. I thing. think I bought an LP of it maybe 15 years ago, I want to say, and I spent probably 30 or $40 that's, on That's it. right. They're yeah. collectible, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think I, I had heard it. I think someone at Sub Pop obviously played it for me. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to go get this record and then realized how hard it was to find it. Exactly. And at the time, I was so enamored by how yeah. different it was that I was like, I guess I'll pay $40 for a yeah. record, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I've known that whole group of people going back 25, 30 years and quite tight with mo- with most of them. Right. So. Okay, so then and then so then you made your way out to San Francisco, <laughs> I, moving right along here. Yeah, I did. I got to San Francisco in '87. This is pre. What made you come out here though? What? What? what well, you what? know, when you grow up on the East Coast, yeah. California is the yeah. shit. That's like Jess. You know, Jess here is from. Yeah. You want to get Pat some more wine here? Yeah. yeah. He's going. Yeah, California is the shit, right? So it's it's like yeah. you know, it's the Doors, it's the birds, right? It's the chicks, right? It's the dope, it's the Pacific Ocean. See, if, if you're from Seattle or Portland, like me. It, it, California is the worst. You don't want to go to California. Yeah, no. They so, hate it. Well, let me tell you what happened. I fly into L.A., right, in 87, to, to visit a few friends. And within about three days, I go, this is ass. Yeah. Right? I'm walking around Hollywood. It's pavement. It's cars. And then I go up to San Francisco, and I walk up Hate Street into Golden Gate Park. And I'm kind of a hippie at heart. I'm not sure. a true hippie. Sure. And I said, oh, my God, this is great. And I said, I'm moving here, and within one month, packed up my stuff, drove across the country, 
and never looked back. Yeah. You know, and I just, I loved the bear for many years. Pre Google, you would work, I worked part time because I lived in a big Victorian. Rent was 200 bucks for each guy. Yeah. And only fools worked full time, yeah. right? Because it was like, yeah, hey, I need 200 bucks a month plus some food, right? My friend, uh, who, uh, one of my favorite people from the Bay Area, uh, yeah. she played in, she was this, played in the, all these punk bands and yeah. she just moved out to like Palm Desert this week. She oh. lived, in, lived in San Francisco for like 20 something years. She got uh, priced out probably? Well, no. Well, no. she was living on Fell Street and uh, her, uh, what? I lived on Fell, 1015B <laughs> Fell Street okay. for 10 years, man. She lived on Fell Street too. Cool. Two bedroom apartment. 700 bucks a month rent control. But nice. now she's working in Oakland. She's like losing her mind. Everything's fucking changed. You know? Right. Like she can't stand it anymore. So she just fucking said, fucking bought a house out in Morongo Valley. So, wow. You know. Wow. Good for her. But yeah. Yeah. It, the town is just, it's. It's not. You know what? I, I go to back to the Bay Area because I, I have friends there. But mm-hmm. I say that L.A. No, let me rephrase this. The Bay Area now makes L.A. look down to earth. Yeah. Totally. L- L.A. is is more organic now it's crazy. Th- than the Bay. Really and you is. know what else is crazy about it is, as insane as that is, too, you yeah. can still get your fucking car broken into like that in San Francisco. You like, can. It's fucking nuts, man. Like You think like all with all the, uh, the bouginess or whatever that at least be safe. It's still like super fucking crazy and dangerous. And That's right. Sketchy as all hell. That's so right. what were you doing when you got out there? I decided, you know, I had... I had um, you know, my band Absolute Grey had been signed to a couple little labels, and we gotten kind of dicked around. And so I said to myself, and this is really ironic, I said, I'm going to start my own label, and no one will ever dick me around. And, of course, then I realized I got dicked <laughs> around by distributors, yeah. other label, right, the press, the meat, right? Right. But I started this label. It's called Heyday Records, named after this Fairport Convention album called Heyday. Mm-hmm. And I basically, a lot of these Paisley Underground bands were baking, breaking up. And so I put out solo albums from members of Green on Red and solo albums uh, from Rain Parade. You know Jack. Uh, Watterson? Uh, uh, Jack, who owns Future Music down here in, in Highland Park. Yeah, a guitar store. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, Jack Watterson yeah, was yeah, one of the guys yeah. I uh, signed. He's my guy. Yeah, Jack. I love Jack. I did a Jack Watterson solo album, dude. Came oh out in 1989. I'm gonna go, I live right down the street. I'm going to go talk to him tomorrow about you that. You should say, he's, I ran into Pat Thomas. He was talking about your first oh solo album. Oh, my God, that's great. Because he's a guy I go in there and I sit on the stool and I and I bullshit with him for hours. And, and he's a guy that I bring every piece of broken gear to. And when he's done fixing it, I go, how much is it going to be? He's like, eh, don't worry about it. Yeah, that's G- Jack. Give me later next time. Yeah. You know? yeah, Jack is one of the world's great people that's amazing yeah i love that so so yeah so that was the label uh i I also uh put out a record by this woman who who later had some success on sub pop and matador called barbara manning Uh it's kind of a a singer ethereal singer songwriter and uh but it was mainly like paisley underground solo albums right you know of which jack was was one wow that's so crazy and who was the oh uh was was chuck prophet around Chuck and I were very tight. I mean, we still are friends, and yeah. he was starting to do stuff. And uh, yeah, I know Chuck really, really well. You know, he's, he's, he's been playing the same white. He's actually got like a Telly knockoff, uh-huh. right? He's had the same white Telecaster for thirty years, and it's like a it's like a Squire. Yeah, it's not even like the real right. deal. But he's you know goosed it up. It's incredible. He's always one of those guys. I feel like is he's kind of like a. He's like an unsung sort of hero or whatever. You he know? is. He's kind of, and I mean this with love. He's like he's like kind of like the indie rock Tom Petty or something, right? Because he's got this kind of swagger uh, with a little bit of Richard Thompson thrown in there right. and some other people. But yeah, I mean Chuck's. I love Chuck. Chuck's, yeah. I, mean, I I don't know him. I you yeah. know I know him from Jack. You know, and, right. and Jackal Jack speaks 
very highly of him, you know. And, right. and whenever, well, they all had a band together called Green on Red. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, right. and, and whenever I and and you know those guys were they were like buddies with like the Gun Club. You they know? were, yeah. And that always that like, whole blows thing. my mind, you know. And that's and, right. And the same way, that's the thing. The same fucking thing that uh, we're having here, where I'm asking you these questions, and you're saying you were asking <laughs> these guys these questions about bands. Like I'll go in there and sit on a stool Talk and to ask Jack about Jeffrey Lee Pierce or something like that. You know. Oh yeah. And I, and I and I love Jack because he's he's got a combination of love and cynicism, right? Mixed, oh yeah, like a fifty fifty blend, sure. right? Sure. Oh yeah, I knew those guys, man. They were kind of well. I loved him, you know. I mean, he's yeah. really, you know, I love Jack. He's got a certain swagger, you know. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And so then, uh, so you're doing the label, and then and then and then what happens? Well, you know what happened was is in the in the late eighties, early nineties, the Europeans loved this kind of music, this kind of right. rootsy, way more than Americans did. Sure. Right? And so I basically moved to Germany for two years and took these kind of these bands with me in a way. And so uh, not Jack himself. Well, yeah, Jack wound up signing to a German label and he toured Germany a few times and his uh, truck did and Steve Wynn from the, you know. And so for, for, for a few years in Germany, like everybody was cashing. I mean, Nobody was getting rich, but sure. it was the difference between playing in front of 75 people in L.A. Yeah. and 400 in Berlin. I know. We just did a European tour. Yeah, like, you know, it, you know it, the drill. Yeah, and, yeah. and especially in Germany, because we play heavy metal music, it's like, it's great, and we sell a fuck ton of merch, and the right. food, then we get paid well, and the, we get food, and we get right. a hotel, and it's just right. a different experience. You know? Yeah, so I was kind of the middleman between the Germans and the Americans, right. you know, and so I did that. That's the mid-90s. Uh and then I decided after many years, I went back to drumming and I started this band called Mushroom uh-huh. doing kind of soft machine, Miles Davis, King Crimson-y instrumental music. And the, and the Kraut Rock legends Faust heard it. Sure. And they, they loved it. They let us open for them a few times. Wow. We collaborated with guys from Tortoise. We became the backing band for Kevin Ayers. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask about Kevin Ayers since you said Soft Machine. Yeah, and we became the backing band for David Allen, who oh, was wow. in Gone. Yeah, amazing. And uh, and now I've moved, you know, I use these terms loosely. I've moved the band to L.A. Right. called Mushroom <laughs> yeah. L.A. And uh, I know exactly what you mean when yeah, you say this. Yeah, you I moved, moved the it. band. I yeah. moved the band, yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, and so now we've got this kind of weird all-star lineup. We've got... Um, David Emmergluck, who's been in the Counting Crows and Monks of Doom. Mm-hmm. We've got a member of Camper Van Beethoven. Um, DJ Bonebreak just signed on to, to play Vibes, you know, from yeah. X. Yeah, of course. Uh, a guy named Juan Gomez, who, who was in this band called The Human Hands. And so it, it's it's almost more of a collective than a band. Yeah. Uh, and so we play at the Cafe Nila all the time. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, we're playing there Thursday, February 1st. No way. Yes. Okay, I'm going to be there. Yeah, That's amazing. Thursday, February 1st, uh, Mushroom. I can't believe it. Yeah. I, can't, I, I can't wait to see that. We're playing in Vegas the following day, so that's perfect. So okay, then I'll be, cool. I'll be at that show. That's fucking amazing. And we Sweet. live right up, Jess and I live right up the road from there. Oh, cool. Yeah, All right. So, I, you know, I love the Nila because it's like five or six bucks to get in. Yeah. And there's no toot. You know, there's no bouncers. There's no. I was bummed. I missed uh, Pat Todd played there the other night. Oh, okay. Night. So you know, and I when I was first coming down to L.A. and I was playing my garage rock band from Seattle, we would open up for the Lazy Cowgirls every time. Oh, I love the Lazy Cowgirls. And they yeah. were, and I was always just, I loved them, and I loved the like country punk and you know that kind of sure stuff. So Pat Todd plays at the Cafe Nila as yeah. well. So I know that. Uh, I, this is this is a kind of fucking podcast where I wish I just had an epi- an hour to just talk to you. Well, you about. know what? I'm loving this because you know it I, should be more about 
yeah. No, no, because, you know, obviously so you come down and talk about Detroit, but, like, this right. is really fun because I don't get really asked about this stuff. Yeah. You know? I mean, I don't want to talk. You know, I love talking about myself. But, no, I know, but, but it's, it's interesting. Just, it's though. just it's fun because we're riffing. Yeah, it's and uh, you know, obviously we've got six degrees of separation. Totally, maybe, yeah. maybe four degrees. Maybe, yeah. Maybe I, I, no, I love it. I, yeah. I and I, I, I think there's so much more I could ask you, but I think that we should we should talk about because we are kind of having this Detroit celebration night, and this is sort of like a live podcast compared to how I normally do it. Sure. And also, I wanted to ask you. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, real quickly before we get into that because we're going to play some music at the end of this episode sure. but I want to ask you a little bit about the Weedles Groove thing because I also I'm from Seattle or yeah. Portland lived in Seattle for a long time right but how did you kind of come across that whole thing well, and what was the impetus this, to put that together this is a funny story and, and there's a funny story about the music okay so so the Weedles Groove uh, CD comes out uh, mm-hmm. this is before I lived there right and my, and my first reaction was uh Soul music from Seattle? Right, yeah. I don't, I don't think so. Sure. And then just as I'm moving to Seattle, the Weedles Groove movie comes out. Right. And I go and see it, and I was like, holy shit, man. There was black people in Seattle, and, and they were grooving, right? Yeah. And I wound up meeting the guys from Light in the Attic, and they kind of you know gave me a job. And they said to me, uh, hey, man, we're going to do a volume two, mm-hmm. and we'd like you to head it up. And my first reaction was, wow, I've only been working here for 10 minutes, and the boss is giving me the big project. Right. Well, I found out why he gave it to me. Because it was a giant pain in the ass to compile. Yeah. Right? And I say that with love right. to everybody involved. Sure. And it took me a few years to, like, track everybody down. And, and uh, you know, a lot of these guys, they only made, like, one 7-inch. Right. And, and there's, there's kind of two different kinds of guys who make one 7-inch. There's the guys that are like, oh, my God, I, I can't believe you called me. I want this 7-inch to be on the CD. I don't care if I make any money. Right. And then there's the other guy who goes, well, you know, I only made this one seven inch and I heard it sold for five grand in Japan. Oh, God. I know. So I'm going to need 10 grand I know this for it to story. be on, my, on the CD, right? I know this story and, so well. And so I'm, I'm a master at walking that minefield. Yeah. That's what I do for a living. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I compiled a couple of Weedle's Groove compilations. And basically, you know, for those who are listening, you probably think like I do, like Seattle didn't didn't have a black history. It had a rich black history. Uh, Quincy Jones came out of there. Yeah. Ray Charles moved there yeah. briefly, came out of there. And so... Jimi uh, Hendrix. Hendrix, of course. Obviously. Right. And so, yeah, Seattle is... Uh, Seattle's got soul, baby. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it had to do with uh, guys being uh, stationed up there in the military and stuff out uh, outside of, like, Tacoma. And that that had a lot to do with it. You know, and a lot of people went up there. Right, and, you know, like, a lot of the West Coast, a lot of African-Americans moved to the West Coast during World War II because there were jobs or they sure. moved just after. And so, yeah, there's an incredible, uh, rich cultural black history in Seattle. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so... Now let's go to the book, uh, When Heaven Was Detroit. Right. And I was really happy to see when I first picked it up, which was, I don't know, Jess showed it to me. Uh, a couple did, months ago, she brought it home because she came to a Yeah, book event. I think I saw it a few months ago for the first time. Yeah. When did it come out exactly? It's been out for about eight months, yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay. So not like that. that long. Yeah. Um, but when I first saw it a few months ago, I, I, I was happy to see some familiar names like Ben Blackwell's in there uh, from Third Man Records and right. some people that I knew. Yeah, you know. Let me just, for the, for the listener, let sure. me just give a quick. So Heaven is Detroit is the name of a giant coffee table sized book and it's a collection of about 50 essays about the whole vast Detroit thing. So you've got obviously Motown, you've got the MC5, mm-hmm. you've got John Lee Hooker, 
you've got some rap and soul, but it, it, it encompasses all kinds of music. And each essay is written by sort of a different expert. There's people that used to write for Cream. Right. Jan Uhelski, who's also an old yeah, friend Yeah, Jan Uhelski, Ben yeah. Edmonds, who I think passed away. And, and, it, and it's just kind of a great, like, Detroit Bible. Yeah. Whether you're an MC5 fan or a Motown fan or whatever, you're going to find something in this book that you're going to love because it's, it's, it's just like a great encyclopedia. Right. And, and you're... You have a couple, couple pieces, couple in there. pieces in there, and then, but specifically, uh, you wanted to talk about uh, the Black Forum label. Yeah. Oh, uh, so here's for for those of you, that if you know anything about Motown at all, this is gonna, this is comes to a big surprise even to hardcore Motown fans. So basically, when we think of Motown, we think of the Supremes and the Temps, and yeah, there was some political music like "What's Going On" by Marvin Gaye. But what happened was, is after Martin Luther King, you know, basically got his head blown off. Some of the younger Motown employees went to Barry Gordy and they said, you know, Barry, it's 1968 and people are rioting in the streets and we need to make a statement, you know. And Barry was like, well, I don't know. And so they so Barry said, look, we'll start a separate black power label and we'll call Black Forum. Yeah. And the very first release was a Martin Luther King speech. Martin Luther King, of course, had already been shot and was killed. And it was Martin riffing against the vietnam war right and then the next album which came out about 1970 was a guy named stokely carmichael who was a black militant and he uh and i you know brought some of this so you can play it later uh he was riffing on huey newton from the black panthers and was a speech called free huey uh then later motown actually signed this woman elaine brown she was a black panther and she was a singer songwriter doing militant political songs uh, they worked with this guy, Amiri Baraka, who was this black poet from New Jersey. And so there's these ten, eight to ten albums that are totally crazy, you know, fuck you honkies right, right. Uh, albums on Motown. And they've never been reissued. Of course, yeah. Uh, except for, now I'm going to give a little plug. I wrote this book called Listen, Whitey. And... Light in the Attic Records did a soundtrack called Listen Whitey, and I've got three or four of these of these Black Four Motown things, uh, you know, on my comp. And um, what was that licensing like? Was that you had to go to Motown? Well, and no, talk actually, to them this or? is something. This is also for, for if you're if you're a music nerd, this is also very interesting. Motown has always kept all of their copyrights very tight, right? In other words, you know, Supreme, you know, Barry Gordy, sometime in the late seventies, early eighties gave back all the Black Forum records to the individual artists. Uh-huh. And so I actually went to the either oh, okay, the, the yeah. artist or their estate. Right. And so I did not have to uh, involve Universal Records and Motown and all that. Right, right. And that's one of the reasons these have never been reissued is they're not really in the Motown archive anymore. Right. Um, but it was really interesting because, you know, one of the things that we, you know, that made Motown popular was it kind of broke the racial barrier. In other words, even if you were, you know, kind of a redneck guy from the South and you didn't like Negroes, you were like, well, Diana Ross is kind of cute and sure. Supreme sound great, right? Sure, sure, sure. But as, as, as things went on... Well, that's like my dad, Vincent, my dad's from New Orleans. Yeah. Their whole thing was like, they loved Fats Domino. Right. They loved... Uh, Oh, what's the woman? Oh, who's the woman that they loved so much? I can't think of her name right now. But they, 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 to be cool at the time was right. to like black music. Right. You know? Right. So, anyways, but, go on. But 
a lot of young black people were getting upset with Barry, Gordy, and Motown because they wanted something a little more militant. Sure. So, so Motown was getting letters in the mail, like, how come the Supremes don't wear natural, you know, why don't they have right. real afros? Why right. are they wearing wigs? Right. And why doesn't you let the Temptations grow their hair out? Right. And so slowly but surely, you know, the Temps do songs like Message from a Black Man. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, you know, obviously Marvin Gaye, what's going on? And so slowly but surely, Motown kind of pol- gets more political, more kind of plugged into to black power, of which the Black Forum label is really a cornerstone thing. And so in, in Heaven is a Detroit, there's maybe five pages about this or ten. And then in my book, Listen Whitey, there's a whole 40 pages worth oh, wow, okay. about this stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and again, I brought some of this music you can play later. Sure. And, and it's just a really cool, because there's something like 50 books about Motown. Right. And 48 of them don't even mention this. Right. And so I found this and I just dug into it, you know, sure. deep, you know, I thought it was really cool. Let me ask you one uh, sort of rumor that I heard, and maybe, maybe you know, maybe you don't, but yeah. uh, there was a rumor that The Fall was supposed to put out a record on Motown at some point. As in Marky Smith? Yes. I've never heard that. I mean, that would have come... You know, Motown in 1972 moves to L.A. Right. And then by... Later, obviously. Yeah. yeah, And then by the 80s, it gets bought and sold. I I don't know the exact timeline. So the only thing I would say to that... First of all, I think it's bullshit. But if if it was true, (laughs) it would be by the point that Universal Records owns Motown. And maybe somebody thought, well... we. We we could throw a Motown logo sure. on this. Yeah, you know the only the only white rock band that was ever on Motown I'm aware of was called Rare, Rare Earth. Earth. Yeah, Rare right. Earth. Yeah, for and sure. there were a couple other honkies on Motown. Yeah. you know, but but yeah, that that sounds almost like an urban legend, to, <laughs> in my opinion. Someone know? said it to me, and I always thought it was a weird yeah. sort of rumor. But I think there's a lot of rumors about the yeah. fall in general. So you know, but the the one thing I do want to say about Detroit sure. is you know it was a working class town, and there was a real melting pot. Because, you know, the other thing, and we think about uh, Detroit, we think a lot of things, you know, obviously the MC5. Mm-hmm. The MC5 loved black culture. I, I brought this rare recording. Uh, they, they did a song, it was never on an album, and it was called um, Mad Like Eldridge Cleaver. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. And, never uh, heard that. Yeah, and, it, and it's a 20-minute jam. And, you know, they really, really embraced, uh, you know, black political culture. Uh, the Art Ensemble Chicago used to hang out in Detroit a lot. And so there's this real crossover there in the 60s and 70s between, you know, you know, white radicals and, and black pop. And it's, you know, there's nothing quite, nothing quite like it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I realized working on this Heaven is, Was Detroit book that, that uh, there's a rich, rich, rich history of Detroit. Because when we think about music, we think of, well, San Francisco, L.A., New York, Memphis. Detroit gets a little bit, gets a little forgotten at times, you know? You know, it's funny. I think I think most people, I would agree with you on most people. I think for me and, and some of the people I play music with, when we think about music, we think about the Midwest a lot. Of course. We but- think about Ohio 
and we think about Michigan a right, lot. Right, Grand Funk, the Stooges, yeah, right? Of All course, the- and then in Ohio, you know, we you had Devo and you had, uh, you know... Uh, like the Dead Boys? The Dead like Boys, and then... Pierre Even the weirder bands like uh, fucking Electric Eels and all this shit, you know? Right, like, yeah, you know, right. The, yeah, the whole Akron, Cleveland yeah. scene is really whacked. But then, yeah, but Detroit and, and Michigan and Ohio and the Midwest, for some reason, there's something special about that... that area and, and you know i think to i'm, I'm going to just go out on a limb now and obviously th- those bands they're you know 10 or 15 or 20 years older than me you know again th- you know these are guys that grew up no cable tv no internet yeah so you know what are you gonna do on a saturday you're gonna get high right and you're gonna jam like mofos right right right, right. there you go well, i think that's the then you, you had seattle you had the grunge thing where it was like it's that it's that thing of like well, nine months out of the fucking year, the weather sucks and there's nothing to do yeah, but you're practice. Stay in your you know? garage, yeah. get high, and jam, man. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think that's it. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right, brother. Thanks, Pat. Thank you. This Good was so fun, man. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for doing it. Yeah. This was very cool. All right. We'll talk soon. Yep. Brothers and sisters, at this point, I'd like to uh, do something that we haven't done in a long time here at the Grand Ballroom. This next thing, this closing thing, is going to be a, a well, spontaneous worry, don't jam. Worry. Don't worry about it. We'll see what happens. We never get a chance to do it. little thing that we're going we're gonna to just put together now. We've been wanting to work it out, but traveling around and everything, we never, being lazy and all, we never have a chance to get in the practice room and get all our little things together. So we're going to without practicing because we all know it so it's this little political song at least it's going to start like that it's hard to tell what happens when you get carrying on and get wild and deep into it going crazy and uh, for those of you that think John Lee Hooker this is a uh, we're going to start off something like that and take it into a, a little more contemporary lyric, uh, a tune that we've uh, decided to call, if we ever do this again, uh, I'm Mad Like Elridge Cleaver's Mad. I'm mad out in the street. I'm frothing at the mouth, pissed. <laughs> one time at least at first they told me they was my friends 
Well, let's set up big lift. Oh, we're gonna build you a machine to give you rituals up the planet beyond your wildest dreams. Beyond your wildest dreams. Straight into the universe, not babe. For a stroke of the pleasures Eight hours at a time You don't use your senses, baby On the assembly line And when I rolled up some more stuff I found a new way to save my day Now I got something, baby they can never take away I got my anger, baby My down in the street hollering rage We're gonna sweep my baby Burn the newspaper page Because I'm mad Yes, I'm mad A man like Elvis Cleaver, mama And so you see A white boy like me Can get mad Can get mad Like Elvis Cleaver, mama
We're here to celebrate Brother Huey P. Newton's birthday. We're not here to celebrate it as Huey Newton, the individual, but as Huey Newton, part and parcel of black people wherever we are on the world today. 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 And so in talking about Brother Huey Newton tonight, we have to talk about the struggle of black people, not only in the United States, but in the world today, and how he becomes part and parcel of that struggle, how we move on so that our people will survive America. Now, why is it necessary for us to talk about the survival of our people? Many of us feel, many of our generation feel, that they're getting ready to commit genocide against us. Now, many people say that's a horrible thing to say about anybody. But if it is a horrible thing to say, then we should do as Brother Malcolm says, we should examine history. The birth of this nation was conceived in the genocide of the red man. Genocide of the red man. Of the red man. In order for this country to come about, the hunky had to completely exterminate the red man, and he did it. And he did it. He did it. And he did it where he does not even feel sorry, but he romanticizes it by putting it on television with cowboy and Indians. Cowboy and Indians. If you do not think he's capable of committing genocide against us, check out what he's doing to our brothers in Vietnam. Check out what he's doing in Vietnam. We must develop an undying love as is personified in Brother Huey P. Newton. If we do not do that, we will be wiped out. Our slogan will become, first, our people, then, and only then, me and you as individuals. Our people first. Our people first. The concept of a black man is one who recognizes his cultural, his historical, and the roots of his great ancestors who were the greatest warriors on the face of this earth. Africans. 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 Many of our people's minds have been whitewashed. If a Negro comes up to you and you turn your back on him, he's got to run to the honky. We're going to take time and patience with our people because they're ours. They're ours. All of the Uncle Toms, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk. And when they slap, we're going to bow. And when they slap, we're going to bow. And we're going to try to bring them home. And if they don't come home, we're going to off them. That's all. We have to recognize who our major enemy is. The major enemy is not your brother, flesh of your flesh, and blood of your blood. The major enemy is the hunky and his institutions of racism. That's the major enemy. That is the major enemy. A lot of people in the bourgeoisie tell me they don't like Rap Brown when he says, I'm going to burn the country down. But every time Rap Brown says, I'm going to burn the country down, they get a poverty program. They get a poverty program. A lot of people say to me, we don't like the Black Panthers for self-defense, walking around with guns. I tell you now, if the hunkies in San Francisco take off the fighters who happen to represent the Black Panthers for self-defense, ain't nobody in this community prepared to fight right now. Everybody gets offed. 
And that's what we have to understand today. So that everything goes out the window, we talk about survival. That's all. They can cut all that junk about poverty program, education, housing, welfare. We talking about survival, and brothers and sisters, we gonna survive America. We gonna survive America. We gonna survive America. each other for our survival. We have to have each other. From the revolutionaries to the conservatives, our black united front is what we're about. Our black united front is what we're about. Yes, I remember the yesterday. The poverty that you and me survived For we tried living on streets that weren't giving And laughed and cried in youth we died and didn't know Oh yes my friends, our history The memory shall carry me until we're free The times we saw we didn't deserve Hostility, we couldn't see, it was absurd But we gave joy, each girl and boy So innocent, our future bent against the wind Oh yes, my friends, our history The memory shall carry me until we're free Desperate kisses in alleyways The future days, they Waste our little lives The concrete park A stab in the dark To rest our soul And we were old before we grew Oh yes my friends Our history The memory Shall carry me until we're free Some friends Walk out in And some are gone How dare they touch Our little spot with what they've done but the future calls Demanding we set ourselves free as we should be Oh yes, my friends, our history The memory shall carry me until we're free Who will survive America? Few Americans, very few Negroes, and no crackers at all. Who will survive America? Few Americans, very few Negroes, and no crackers at all. Who will survive America? Very few Negroes, no crackers at all. America with your 20 cent habit, your flow bag Jones, will you survive in the heat and fire, actual change, I doubt it, will you survive woman or will your nylon wig catch a fire at midnight and light up Sterling Street and your ass prints on the pavement, 
grease was melting in his brother's eyes. His profile was shot up by a Simba. Thinking who was coming around the corner was really Tony Curtis. And not a misguided brother got his mind hanging out with Italian. Who will survive America? The black future will. You can't with the fat stomach between your ears. Scraping nickels out the inside of nigga daydreams. Few Americans, very few Negroes. Maybe no red Negroes at all. Who will survive America? Who will survive America? The stiff back chalk lady Baptist in blue lace. If she shrinks from blackness in front of the church, following the wedding of the yellow robots, will not survive. She's old anyway, and they moving her church in the wind. Old people, no. Christians, no. First Negroes, be invisible to truth. 1944, Minnesota, no, no. Nothing of that will be anywhere. It will be burned clean. It might sink and steam up the sea. America might, and no Americans. Very few Negroes will get out and no crackers at all. No crackers at all. No crackers at all. No crackers, no crackers at all. But the black man will survive America. His survival will mean the death of America. Survive black man. 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 Black woman too. Survive black man. Survive black man. Survive black man. Black woman too. Black woman too. Black woman too. Let us all survive. Who need to? Let us all survive. Let us all, 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 all survive. Let us all survive. Who need to? Okay, okay. We wish each other good luck. Okay, so that was Pat Thomas on the uh, Jed Bangers Ball podcast. Um, just uh, to go through the music real quick. Um, at the end there, the first song you heard was MC5. That was Mad Like Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, the song is like 20 minutes long, so we um, we only played a, a, a little bit of it so that you could get a feel for it. Um, and, you know, I was listening to that thinking to myself, Jesus Christ, what, uh, what, 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 what were people's parents thinking back then at the time? It must have been outrageous but they didn't have twitter to complain so uh no one gave a fuck and went on with their uh, everyday life like everyone fucking should um after that we heard the tribe which was kind of a cool i'd never heard that one before um uh kind of miles davis bitches brew uh they were doing how do we end all of this madness that was the song um then we had uh, a speech by stokely carmichael free huey newton or free huey is this is the speech um based on huey newton obviously um we had after that Elaine Brown of the uh, Black Panther Party doing Until We're Free, and then we had Amiri Baraka. I hope I'm saying that right, and that was Who Will Survive America. Uh, so thank you for listening, Jed Bangers Ball. I want to thank again Pat Thomas uh, for being my guest. I want to thank Shinola Detroit for sponsoring the event, uh, John and Vinny's for the food, um, Ashes and Diamonds Chardonnay, um, Derek James uh, DJed. Chad Brown was the uh, equipment manager, I guess you'd call him. <laughs> uh, our producer is Jessica Hundley. You heard her at the beginning uh, walking around. Um, and then our engineer would be Sean Hoffman. So thanks again for listening, and uh, I'll see you next episode.